Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When I'm at work and I call my bluff and I just want to get out I'm tight, am I right? I just want to get out 
You're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs with me, Giles Bidder. On today's episode, we've got Ellie Bleach telling us stories of work, life, music, growing up in Southend-on-Sea. Her EP, No Elegant Way to Sell Out, is out now on Sad Club Records. And Ellie's got some stuff coming up this month. On the 10th of June, she'll be at Long Division Festival. And on the 15th of June, you can see her in London at Stoke Newington at Donna. Cheers to Tallulah and Sad Club Records for setting this up. And thank you for listening. 2000 Trees supports the show. Trees is an independent festival in Cheltenham, just a few hours away from London on the train. And it's coming around the corner now. Loads of great bands, loads of great artists. Soft Play, formerly known as Slaves, Bullet For My Valentine, and Frank Carter and the Rattlesnakes are headlining. And there are heaps of excellent names across the poster. Prima Queen, Sprints, High Viz, Crows, Military Gun, Martha, Bob Villain, Lambrini Girls, and hundreds of other ace sounds in a beautiful field in probably a very sunny Wednesday to Saturday. If you want to go to 2000 Trees this July, but you haven't yet got your ticket, head to 2000trees.co.uk. And if you use the voucher code 101POD, you can get 20 quid straight off that price. That's at 2000trees.co.uk. All right. You're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs with me, Giles Bidder. This is Ellie Bleach. I think at the moment, I am quite content with my general life balance. But I suspect that that might be because I'm mid-20s and... In a few more years, I'll be yearning for another kind of stability. Um, Not necessarily, you know, getting a desk job, but more, I mean, yeah, realistically more, why can't music be my only thing that I have to worry about? Um, But obviously, the whole point of this uh, podcast, I imagine a recurring theme is people have to worry about things other than music. (laughs) Telling people you want to be a full-time musician, I imagine doesn't feel like the most comfortable thing a lot of the time. I mean, you tell me, you know, but how do you feel saying that? Yeah, it's embarrassing. It is embarrassing. I think any, you know, declaring that you want to pursue any creative endeavour full-time does feel arrogant to declare that's, that's your purpose and that's your function. Because I think being an artist feels very self-indulgent. And it is. But also, who really has a truly altruistic career? Unless I'm like like a doctor for Médecins Sans Frontières or something. <laughs> like, it is a selfish endeavour, but so are so many things. The idea of something being rewarding is a very strange... I think that kind of existed in a world where people had better wages in comparison to you know the cost of living because you'd have a job that pays well and then a separate thing would be if it is rewarding or not whereas now a job that pays well is rewarding because it pays well well that seems to be the case for a lot of my friends and stuff it's like well I can't complain because the money's okay have you had ever had a job where you've been a bit flush 
where you felt a bit flush? Um, no, <laughs> I've <laughs> I've never had a job that pays anywhere near well, and I wear that on my sleeve. <laughs> you know what? It's it's mad. You know, of course, when you know this conversation, you know we we're, 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 we can only really speak of our own experiences. I did medium at school went to uni went to a good uni for journalism and it took me so long like years to ever find to get to find a job that was semi all right you know and I, I just can't be alone I, I think of all the people who who go to uni everyone there must be millions of CVs that look basically one for one yeah for sure I mean for me, so I did English literature at uni. I didn't, and I kind of discovered music and songwriting while I was at uni as a hobby, and then chose to pursue that as my main career, as it were. Um, but before that, I think my ambitions were equally as lofty, but just in a different uh, discipline. Like before that, I wanted to be a writer. Uh, a novelist, a journalist, any kind of writer, um, which I'd probably be struck. Like sometimes I think, wow, I really, uh, I really like turned on my heels at uni to pursue something so ambitious. But actually, my initial plan was equally as ambitious, just in a completely different industry. I often equate musicians with writers. Yeah, yeah, both depressed and poor. And both creating things that other people enjoy and make life meaningful for them. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that as well, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not getting all right on there. That's not what I mean. <laughs> but but, it's, but isn't, that, isn't that the funny shift of balance? The, 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 and this can get quite political quite quickly, but maybe everything's political. You know, the the export of with the Beatles and the Stones, there is just, you know, so much influence or impact of that on everything that's around us, right, in the UK. Yet there's no support, really, not real tangible support. PRS, Momentum Foundation is great. BBC Introducing, great. But those are two things in an ocean mm. of an industry. Yeah, that's true, considering how much our cultural output is as a nation I think it I think if there were some kind of support system like financially or whatever then we'd run into the problem of like the selection process because you know people on labels they already have a fucking support system so would it be um you know people on major labels but then would that mean people eligible for this kind of support have to be proved that they're quote unquote good or worthy in some yeah. way. And how yeah. do you go about doing that? Because then if it becomes a popularity contest, you're back to square one. It's, it's a difficult question, right? It can't be a popularity contest and, you know, or equally, can it be meritocratic? You know, the harder you work, the better you yeah. do, because that might be wrong as well. Yeah. Because again, what does that even mean? And how do you, you know, how do you measure all these things? It's so intangible. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's ruthless. It's ruthless and it's cruel. Um, you know, I wonder on the flip side, if the kind of mercurial nature of it is kind of what makes it exciting. Yeah, for sure. I think, 
you know, if there was a a step-by-step tutorial on how to become a successful musician, then what's the point? We'd have a world of successful musicians, so no one would be a successful musician. Or, you know, there's obviously no step-by-step guide to success in the system we live in because otherwise everyone would do it. And otherwise I would have, you know, when I started making music at like 20, I would have looked it up on WikiHow and I'd be Lewis Capaldi by now. Um, But that's not how anything works. And yeah, I think that is part of the magic and the allure of show business as well. For me, there's an element of subculture there as well or counterculture where you're doing something that's against the grain or against sort of the boring normality of, you know, mundane life that's in, that makes music interest, interesting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I jokingly call myself uh, a bohemian layabout when people ask, you know, what my day job is, what my what do I do with my time? But I'm kind of making fun of the fact that being a musician is is a very kind of self-involved pursuit. And it does seem like you're not doing much when you are. I'm very of the school of thought that you can kind of like rebrand your own life narrative however you please. And, you know, whatever job you're working, you can make it very clear in conversations when people ask what you do. Oh, but I just do that for money. This is what I really do. And I think that's what, you know, we have the right to do that whenever we please we have the right to exaggerate and sweep other bits under the rug um as much as we can yeah t- we're allowed to do that it's it's we have agency to do that yeah <laughs> yeah lying is great what have you one part-time jobs one hundred one part-time jobs one hundred one part-time jobs one hundred one part-time jobs I grew up in Essex in Southend-on-Sea. What was that like? You got a couple of venues there, right? Uh, yeah, literally a couple, I think, at this point. Um, I mean, <laughs> I went to gigs as a teenager um, in Southend, but I didn't really start pursuing my own music until I went to uni and was sort of out of that. So I never really played any amateur shit, um, you know, like, Actually, I did like one open mic when I was 16 that is literally a repressed memory at this point. So thank you for nudging up that trauma. Um, (laughs) um, But yeah, I started playing gigs properly when I went to uni in Norwich. So I didn't really have that much experience of the South End music scene other than a a mere spectator. Did you, as a spectator, was there that impetus to think... You know, maybe I could do a bit of that too. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I was uh, definitely guilty of I'm better than all you people (laughs) uh, when I was a teenager. (laughs) Um, Despite this point, I could like barely play the piano and didn't even really know that I could write songs. Um, But, you know, I had the sneaking suspicion (laughs) that I was better than everyone in this room. No, I mean, I'm half joking. Um, And I loved live shows. I mean... It's what, it shaped so much of my identity growing up, going to gigs, like meeting friends through that way. Um, Yeah, I think a lot of my 
yeah, a lot of my identity from at that age probably revolved around going to, you know, seeing bands at the uh, the same rotation of shitty pubs in Southend. They're probably all closed now. Sad. Hey, that sounds fun. Pub gigs are the one. Yeah, for sure. I kind of, I don't really go to, I say like the O2 Academy is the biggest capacity gig that I enjoy going to as a spectator. Like I would, I much prefer seeing acts in a sweaty pub or someone that I've never heard of before than uh, paying £20 to see someone whose music I do actually listen to but in a huge venue. It's different experience. It's a weird complex I have with like a lot of my favourite artists of all time. I, if the opportunity came up to see them in London, I don't think I would. I think I'd the expectations would be too high in my head. Who might that be? Is that Chaz and Dave? <laughs> um, not quite Chaz and Dave. Um, <laughs> who, I mean, one of my favourite songwriters of all time is Fiona Apple. And thank God she's a hermit that never leaves her house in LA. Because if she came to London, I'd be so torn because she's one of my favourite artists of all time. I feel like I'd have to see her. Mm. But at the same time, I don't want to be in a room full of people that also like Fiona Apple. I feel like they'll be insufferable, myself included. Mm. Um, And yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I think there'd be like too much pressure on the evening to be perfect because I've spent my whole life listening, not my whole life, my post-adolescence listening to her music. So, As a guitar music fan, it was always about the gig for me, but sometimes the show would ruin it. It's it's really hard mm. to know. It's, it's a bit of a lottery. And, and then, you know, real life factors come into play. You could be standing next to someone that has really bad BO or, and that ruins your whole night. <laughs> or does a fart. Exactly. Yeah. Farting in the venue, an atrocity. I'm going to, I'm going to guess a job that you've done right now. Okay. I'm going to try and avoid uh, the, the, the classics. I'm going to try and avoid the coffee, the barista, I'm going to try and avoid, I don't know, Gardener's not a cliche, but Gardener's a good one. I know so many people that are like, I feel like that's a really common, uh, a lot of male musicians I know do that kind of work as their part-time thing. Is that? All those male poets. Yeah, those goddamn male poets. Yeah. (laughs) Put yourself to good use and do some manual labour. Hey, I mean, that is manual labour, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gets a couple of breeze blocks on your shoulder. Yeah. All right, I'm, I'm guessing, have you ever driven machinery? Or have you ever driven... I don't know why I'm thinking of, like, a mini train, like the one along Brighton Seafront. I can... Or maybe you can imagine that. would be doing a great that. job. But no. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think you're protected by a union if you drive the South End Pier mm-hmm. mini train either. You don't get to strike... Well, I never did, but like so many people I knew when I was a teenager had a job at Adventure Island, which is like our theme park, to the point where from ages 13 to 18, I couldn't set foot in Adventure Island as a punter for fear of bumping into like 
someone that bullied me at school or <laughs> because everyone worked there. It was like the, I think it was one of the few places that hired people under 18. So yeah, just everyone worked at Adventure Island. There's quite, there's quite a lot of like films in my mind based around sort of teenagers, like coming of age movies. I'm thinking of like Goonies or um, The Lost Boys, where that Adventure Island was. There's quite like a big imagery for me around those kind of Adventure Island places on the pier. There's a real sort of aesthetic and mm. sound to it, obviously, you know, with the with the ding dongs. But there's there's like there's something a bit alluring about it. It's also a bit like sinister. Yeah, for sure. I think I mean, I am really drawn to the artifice and the kind of kitsch aesthetic of places like that. Um, anything with a theme or a facade and anything that revolves around having fun, but you can tell the workers there are miserable. I find yeah. very <laughs> lucrative uh, creatively. Like I'm very, I do think uh, growing up in South End, like a seaside kind of resort town has given me this kind of penchant for kitsch and that kind of tacky British artifice that I've just always loved. And I'm very drawn to. You. That's cool. I mean, there's I, lots of colours, right? Lots of sounds. Like I said, there's there's lots of, you know, in the winter. There, there must be such a two-sided coin living somewhere like that. Yeah, somewhere that's seasonal as well. So I think it mm. does close for part of the winter, and it does just look like a ghost town. I mean, obviously you can't oh. go inside, but because South End's very hilly, you can see. Uh, you can see like into Adventure Island when it's closed and yeah it's very spooky if I were brave enough I'd break in and (laughs) do a secret concert there or something there's lots of disparity in seaside towns right because a lot of the jobs are seasonal and so there'll be this sort of big rub of people who live there who are trying to make things work and get by on what jobs there are on offer the few jobs that are on offer and then the people that come in the summertime springtime who have lots of money to spend did you see that for sure I mean less so like people with second homes coming in but there's definitely a huge uh difference between houses along the seafront so you know million pound homes that have a sea view and are very luxurious and then uh, a mile into the centre of town, it's a lot more, um, a lot more working class and nowhere near as glamorous. And yeah. the people in the centre of town are, you know, they are the people of South End. The people around on the seafront—that's a very small uh, percentage of the population. But when you come to South End for the day, you see all these. Uh, magnificent houses on the seafront and you think that's what the whole town's like right right what what did you work as if you were trying to avoid adventure island where was ellie's place to to try and hide out and make some cash for the weekends um well as a teenager um i made a bit of money actually you would have never guessed this i (laughs) did um i was 
competitive ballroom dancer for no. a while and yes. I taught ballroom dancing classes to people. This was only like a few hours a week, so not very, you know, just pocket money. But yeah, that's what I did. I kind of, I've totally forgot about that, actually. You were a pro ballroom dancer. Not a pro ballroom dancer. I didn't make money from competitions, but I made money from teaching. Yeah. But again, like I said, we have the freedom to lie. So maybe I should just tell people that I was a pro ballroom dancer. That would read all right in the PR, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think so. But then you'd have like Clara Ampho on Radio 1 being like, so tell me about your professional ballroom dancing. Where can I see it? You'd have to come up with a video. There's no video <laughs> evidence of me dancing because I was a self-conscious teenager and would like murder my mum if she even got out of camera. So people do just have to take my word for it. <laughs> Maybe dig through the archives at my old dance school. Is there yeah. no cameras? Lost. You just weren't allowed cameras in the audience. That was it. Yeah, yeah. And... uh yeah, that's just lost to the sands of time now. I mean, it seems like that that's the kind of thing that really, you know, it's not just a few hours a week. It really takes over your life. The, you know, the, 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 amount, the little amount that I know about dancers and, you know, ballet dancing, for example, is, is being like documented in films and books for forever about, you know, the, the intense nature of the routine, the execution, the, the culture of it. Was there a similar kind of thing going on there with ballroom dancing? Um, yes, there was. I found there was kind of a divide um, at my dance school between people who, for which ballroom dancing was their whole life and people more like me who did it as a child, really enjoyed it. And before you know it, you've been doing it for 10 years as a teenager and then wanted a little bit of money on the side so taught some classes like I wasn't that into the world of it but um yeah that dancing like strange competitive social circle I mean it's been covered in so many like you know dance mums and then like strictly ballroom have you seen that Baz Luhrmann film it's great no no I think it's one of his first feature films but that is about families where the whole family does ballroom dancing and they are so real. Like they, there were plenty of those at my dance school, like the mum, the daughter, the son that's forced to do it and the husband (laughs) that carries all the costumes and drives them to the competitions. Did that give you like a sense of uh, discipline? I think um, it definitely helped, uh, kind of it fueled the fire for my love of performing um I did like I never really got nervous in front of in front of a crowd of people um and I think that's a big kind of obstacle to overcome for a lot of musicians when they start performing um again I was doing more competitions rather than showcases so I wasn't like on a stage you're sort of in because of how boring works when you're, you know, moving around the floor, the crowd's like all around you in a kind of panopticon. Yeah. So you are being watched from all angles. So it is, if you're a self-conscious teenager, it is kind of immersion therapy for that. It's wow. like a baptism in fire. You're being watched and literally judged um, on how your body is moving <laughs> in front of a, a crowd right. of 
hundreds of people. So, and as a teenager, that's a pretty messed up thing. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's uh, in the spirit of you know, it doesn't have that like immediately malicious or sinister feeling no. there. But in retrospect, it is funny that that period of my life you know, competitive ballroom dancing coincided with the period when you are the most self-conscious and insecure that you'll ever be. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's intense. Were you writing music around that time? I I sort of wrote music in secret around that time. Um, I couldn't really play instruments very well as a, I only really started to learn piano when I was at uni I'd have these ideas for songs, but they'd just kind of be these strange, embarrassing acapella recordings on my family's computer. So yeah, I think I was at that time. Um, I do think the music that we danced to um, influenced me a lot more than I realised. Like, even now, I'll be in public and hear some Latin American song from the 2000s being played and it, I'll suddenly be like oh, I used to dance to this song and I totally forgot about it and I never looked it up because the lyrics weren't in English or um it comes back to haunt you in strange ways we also used to dance to a CD that was covers of ABBA hits but in like ballroom and Latin arrangements so great whenever I hear an ABBA song now in my head I'm adding maracas or <laughs> like whatever <laughs> they did to to make it like a cha-cha-cha song or whatever. Um, so it definitely influenced my music taste and yeah, in strange ways because mm. that music's so functional. You don't really think of it as, you know, it's not something you're listening to by choice. It's something you have to know inside out because you're dancing to it, but you never actually mm. chose it in the first place. I wonder if that's like similar to if you come from a household that loves, for me, it was Simon and Garfunkel and mm. also Guns N' Roses. It's like those things are just synonymous with, I don't know, kind of a good time or like holiday, for example, or, you know, Saturday mornings. Yeah, for weekend sure. mornings. I mean, that's what influences are. They're not necessarily something you chose to be influenced by. We can't, you know, we just absorb pieces of culture without really meaning to um but that's but I love that I love finding out what music people grew up listening to involuntarily I often ask new friends like what music did your parents listen to in the car it often it tells you so much about the kind of foundation of someone's taste or even the taste that they want to avoid (laughs) yeah Um, because lots of people they're music taste is sort of opposite to what they listen to in the car as children. There's definitely something to say for going somewhere where you don't pick the music. Yeah. Clubbing, of course, is probably the biggest <laughs> example. But I mean, I was at the my local coffee shop, the waiting room in Deptford this morning, and I absolutely love that place. And they play a lot of punk rock and some mellow stuff. And this morning they were playing Cocteau Twins and some other stuff that I didn't know. And I thought, wow, this is, this is, this has made my morning really great because I'm going in and I don't, I'm not putting anything on myself. I'm listening to something else that, you know, someone else has chosen. And that's a really great way to experience music. 
Yeah, for sure. I think that is the magic of radio that is a little bit lost these days. Or even like television and music channels, the the joy of having something you love come on by pure chance. And then you have, you know, a three minute time window where you have to listen to the song because you're not going to hear it again. I think I do miss that. Yeah, I remember you know, in my childhood, a song we love coming on on the radio, we're about to pull into our destination in the car and then we just sit in the car for an extra three minutes to listen to the song. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, that is a huge compliment to the artist as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I was so young, the artist in question would have been like <laughs> S Club 7. But still, but still, I was begging my mum to stay in the car for another three minutes. That's brilliant. That's brilliant, Ellie. When did you really get into deciding you wanted to like give it a go, like, you know, really immerse yourself or prioritize however your framing of it was to 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 be Ellie Bleach and to prioritize <laughs> that music? Was it was it a slide into it over an over a few years? Or was it really, you know, did you did you come to a head? Did you come to a like a fuck this turning the page moment? Um it was uh it was slowly and then all at once as they say um it i think yeah towards the end of uni i was doing more gigs in norwich um i was starting to be known locally as ellie bleach the musician because i think a lot of it is realizing what you are perceived as as well so just i don't know being known by people on my uni campus as uh, <laughs> that girl that plays music. Um, that kind of, you sort of think, okay, maybe this is sort of part of my identity now. And then yeah. finished yeah. uni, went back home to live with my parents for like six months because I was broke and was desperate to move to London. I had friends in London who also played music and, you know, loved going to gigs in London. So for me, the deciding to move to London, this was in 2019, was when I was like, no, I'm actually doing this. I'm going to pursue being a musician. I'm not going to bother with trying to get, you know, a nine to five office job. I'm going to get whatever I can to pay the bills to facilitate playing music as much as possible. So I think it was the move to London, you know, it was a slow build up of things but then the move to London was like okay I'm doing this now and London can be a lonely place to live you know there's there's so much going on but you know you I can often find myself sitting at home not knowing what to do so I don't do anything at all Mm. I'm sure I'm not alone doing that I mean did you find have you been able to find yourself people or a place where you feel at home where you feel like you can breathe yeah I'm I was really lucky in that respect that I'd already started to kind of make a group of friends that were musicians in London before I even moved there. So um, Zach, my friend, who's now my housemate, I used to crash on his couch or, you know, sleep at the foot of his bed like a cat um, several days a week before I even moved to London. Yeah, literally yeah. commuting from Essex because there was nothing for me at home. And I remember like my London friends not even realising that I didn't live in London for the first few months because I was right. there all the time. 
Um, so I was really lucky in that respect that I had uh, a group to like a little a little community of friends to join straight away when I moved there. I didn't have mm. to sort like sort them out one by one. Yeah, I mean it's difficult finding friends when you're a bit older. Mm. I do think going to gigs has been the reason I've met a good a good like 70% of my friends now. It's yeah. one of the few public places where you still talk to people in smokers areas, I find. Yes. I don't really do like the club. <laughs> so uh, that's my only option really. Cause like who actually goes up to a stranger at a pub and talks to them? No one. Me? You? I do that sometimes. Yeah. Wow. Well, I just, I don't know if it's something like, and it's not like it's that there's always something to talk about. Mm. You know, I don't know what it is, but there's something at the time, but I mean, my girlfriend's amazing at doing that, walking into an off license and like saying hi to the person behind the till or like saying thanks to the driver, getting off the bus. And that feed that kind of feeds and bleeds into other social scenarios where you just sort of feel comfortable to do that because there's actually nothing wrong with doing that. That's actually quite funny. I really enjoy that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, don't get me wrong. Me and my off-license guy have a beautiful relationship. <laughs> Although he started to comment more on what I'm buying or how long I take to choose what I'm buying, which is starting to okay. feel like a bit of an invasion of... It feels like a bit of a violation of our social contract. There, there has to be some separation of church and state there. Yeah, yeah, there really does. <laughs> like, I feel like the, yeah, the unwritten rule of off-licenses is never comment on what someone's buying because it's nearly always something really depressing. You know, it's going to be alcohol and a form of instant noodles. So let's not talk about it. I've been getting really into the, the little magnums and they've got the wagwans now. Oh, yeah. The little tonic wines that can fit down your pants going into the club. Oh, nice. I mean, it is, it, it, that, is, that is one that people judge you, I think. There are, I do get a bit embarrassed buying, um, I really like Cherry Bee, the cherry yes. wine. Yes, yeah. And... I always feel like clarifying. I'm like, okay, I'm only buying Cherry B from this off license because you stock it. And I get the rest of my alcohol from other places. But don't think I'm only drinking Cherry Bs. <laughs> Honestly, I'd respect it. I'd respect someone who just like just drank Cherry B. Because it's a very, it's a London thing, right? Is it a London thing? Um, I discovered Cherry B when I was at uni because they have them in Savers. That glory savers is like, I think the mecca of underage drinking because they only stock obscenely sugary drinks. They only stock like Echo Falls, Cherry Bee, Baby Sham, Lamborghini. I thought say this isn't savers like the discount place. Yeah, I think they, they just did sort like, of pharmaceuticals and toilet rolls. Yeah, they do. But they also randomly have alcohol and no one talks about it. <laughs> like That's brilliant. If drugs stocked alcohol, society would change. But for some reason, savers are just already doing that. Brilliant. Brilliant. Are you enjoying the, the months after... No elegant way to sell out. I mean, it's more than a few months now, isn't it? But, you know, is that turn the page for you? Is there as something, you know, are you feeling differently to how you did when you released it? Yeah, for sure. I I do really like having 
a proper body of work I can direct people to now. Um, I mean, the beauty of releasing, yeah, multiple songs at the same time is I can, if people haven't heard of me, I can say, well, listen to this EP and this I do feel represents my sound and what I'm trying to do pretty accurately. And that's a really nice, it's a nice feeling to put something out that you think does the job. Like, does the job yeah. sounds like I just kind of threw it together. I mean, it it does actually fulfil its original, my original intentions, basically. The bass and the drums in it are, are great. You know, there's a great feel to it. It's, it's warming. It's a warming sound. Yeah. The, um, on that EP, the rhythm section, the bass and drums are recorded by um, the rhythm section of the band Honey Glaze. So yeah. um, Yuri, great the drummer, band. and Tim, the bassist, they're great. Brilliant. Yuri is a phenomenal drummer. Yeah, he's incredible pretty obsessed with watching him actually yeah he's in i mean maybe he's kind of streamlined down to just honey glaze now because they're doing so many gigs but when i first met him as every drummer you meet tends to be he was in like five bands just so busy and that's partly why he's such a great drummer i think just a really likable guy yeah he's lovely (laughs) Brilliant. Ace, Ellie, thanks so much for being up for this. I really appreciate the long form nature of it. So cheers for cheers for the time. Oh, we love a long form. Brilliant. We love a long Good form. Good stuff. Good stuff. I like to end these asking people about their favourite work gaffes or work fails. If there there has been such a thing in your life, in your in your foray into the workplace. Have you ever had some embarrassing moments or times that you fucked up times that you messed up oh I've any of that yeah I've fucked up phenomenally almost every job I've ever had in some way or another (laughs) I was fired from my first job as an adult um I did tutoring when I was at uni um for like a tutoring agency and I was so bad at checking my schedule that I'd regularly be like an hour late. But bear in mind, the sessions were only about three hours. And about the fourth time I was an hour late, um, I got a text. I got a breakup text saying, don't bother coming in, you're stacked. And then they sent a letter home to my parents Bear in mind, I was at I was at uni, and they sent a letter home to my Essex address, saying Ellen has been sacked. <laughs> what? You're an adult, and I was a full I was a full adult. Yeah, I mean, I was in first year uni, so I'm still basically a child. But that was outrageous. <laughs> that is wild. Who was it addressed to? It was addressed to Mister and Missus Bleach. No, yeah, way. <laughs> And they claim that was the only contact address they had. Not true. <laughs> Ellie, that is phenomenal. I know. I got told off. Like, That's ooh. really embarrassing. It is really embarrassing. <laughs> I'm sorry. Have you recovered? I've just about recovered. But being fired really does feel like being dumped. Like It does. I, was, I didn't even like that job, but I was crying 
I remember at the time being like, oh my God, they actually didn't like me so much that they got rid of me. And I was the first person to ever be fired from that job. Um, so you got, hey, look, you got this. Do you know what? They're bigger and better things, as they say. It's a test of character. It was a test of character. And you know what? I was 18. My birthday's late in the school year, so I have would have only been an adult for like a few months at that point. Of course I'm going to turn up an hour late to work. I was still drunk from the night before. Like, what do they expect of me? Yeah, come on. Come on. <laughs> All right, Ellie, this is brilliant. We'll have to do another one when the next record comes out. Yes, of course. Um, shall I do some shameless plugging? Yeah, please. Let's go. What you got coming up? Um, I'm playing a gorgeous, sexy little gig in uh, Donya in Stoke Newington. Uh, wow, never heard of on it. On the 15th of June. Nice. Um, I have some new music bubbling under the surface and gig in Brighton in July and I'm playing over summer so and where over summer which festivals over summer um I'm playing long division festival nice sometime in June and yes going to be doing some very exciting things uh new music related not sure what I can tell people yeah as of yet but yeah. stuff is coming, I promise. I know it's annoying Excellent. when people say new things coming. <laughs> and But there is just no other way around it when you're like, I can't announce the specifics, but big things coming. Announcement of an announcement. Yeah, yeah. I'm announcing that I big will time. be announcing something soon. Excellent. <laughs> well, we're looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for being up for this, Ellie. This has been ace. Yeah, it's been lovely talking to you, Giles. I've generally unearthed a lot of memories that I've completely forgotten about. <laughs> I forgot that I know how to ballroom dance. So there was Ellie Bleach on 101 part-time jobs. Some dates for your diary there. 15th of June at Donna in Stoke Newington. Before that, 10th of June at Long Division Festival, if you're around that way. And some new music, apparently. Cheers for listening to 101 part-time jobs. Didn't get a chance to do a playlist episode this week. I'll probably get back into the swing of that next week when we've got episodes with the oozes and Lambrini girls. All right, cheers again and see you next week. Cheers to Jason Cavalier for the production of these songs. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.